Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is made possible with the support of Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotelconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. The outcome of this election is clear. He is the most beloved CEO by passengers in the history of commercial aviation. He's Ben Baldanza, the former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. That's right, Ben, right? No, well, I think that was a rigged election. That sounds like fake news. <laughs> <laughs> well, with all the great work at ABC 27, he has quickly become the most recognizable new face living in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Oh, He's NPR's here and now transportation analyst, Seth Kaplan. Too kind, Ben. Well, pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. Uh, Today, it's back to one of the worst ever crises facing the airline industry. Well, the one before it was surpassed by a new worst ever crisis. We'll explain. Plus, is the revival of air service at smaller airports over? First, though, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Ben, I said the previous worst ever crisis, at least for some airlines and one big manufacturer, talking, of course, about the Boeing 737 MAX. We haven't talked about it a lot lately, but a lot has been going on. So, so I want to catch up on that. And in particular, there was a Bloomberg story that a lot of people might have seen last week that talked about Southwest Airlines being in talks to buy as many as 37, 37 max white tails, as they're called. So these are planes that have been manufactured or sitting there. They're, I mean, literally the tails are white because wherever they were supposed to be going, that airline or those airlines can't take them anymore. And this is remarkable on a lot of levels. First of all, just the idea that if we think back to what, uh, 20 months ago, Oh my gosh! Uh, what are airlines going to do with all without all the maxes they were expecting? How are they going to fill all that capacity that's in the schedule? And here we are with airlines not even wanting necessarily all the maxes that have been produced. The point is excess supply of aircraft relative to demand. And this was interesting, too. The article said that this would not be incremental orders by Southwest. These would not be 30 additional planes. This would just be Southwest taking those planes off Boeing's hands, if my read is correct here, sooner than Southwest planned to take its planes just to to help Boeing out, basically. And you have to imagine Southwest would be getting a very good deal on those planes because Boeing would rather get something for them than just have them sitting there, at least something that comes close to you know, covering its its uh, marginal costs. So, Ben, a lot going on there. Uh, first, anything I'm missing here, is that the right characterization? And what does this say about appetite for these planes? And then I want to next get into sort of where the MAX program is. But for now, Southwest Boeing, what should we read into that, if anything at all? Well, I think what I read into it is Southwest is continuing to stay very aggressive. We talked uh, over the last over last week about Southwest's 
moving into Chicago and Houston's Bush Intercontinental Airport um, because they could now, right? That there's access or at least more access available right now. And they're taking advantage of that and saying, now's the time while we're relatively strong, maybe everybody's weaker because of COVID, of course, but Southwest, very strong balance sheet, very strong, you know, historically company and one that's managed themselves well. And they probably are seeing that here's a chance to double down on a plane that we believe in that will improve our overall economics and probably at some otherwise completely unavailable prices that they could get them at. You know, Seth, no airline in the world has done this better than Ryanair, but what good airlines do is they buy airplanes when nobody else is buying them because they have the financial strength to do that. And they they lock in sort of a long-term capital cost strength as a result of that. Ryanair's done that really well. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised to see Ryan at some point place a big order for 737 Maxes now too, because that's a plane they would fly and they're a big Boeing customer and not a lot of people are buying now. And that's usually when they, you know, get the pen and ink out. So I see this as Southwest just being really aggressive and saying, we're going to do things, we're going to use this opportunity for the industry where a lot of people are weak and we're going to recognize our own weaknesses, but our relative strength within that and use it to grow in places that maybe faster than we otherwise would have grown and maybe grow even a little bit faster by taking some airplanes more quickly. That's how I read it. You know, as you were starting to answer the question, I was scribbling down Ryanair, like remember to, remember to ask Ben about Ryanair, then you answered the question before I even asked it, but absolutely, I think I've told the story in the past, but so many weeks ago that it's worth repeating. I remember being at an airline conference in London, oh, a dozen years ago, something like that, and Ryanair had spoken, had given a presentation, and I'm sitting at a table and a, a, a much smaller competitor, uh, the CEO of that airline kind of grumbles uh, uh Ryanair they're they're that's not an airline they're just an aircraft trading firm they just they just buy airplanes when they're cheap and get rid of them when they're when they have high values and I thought to myself well that's a pretty good business <laughs> yeah that's exactly <laughs> yeah right. buying low and selling high that's that's oh, that that's, Tom that Cruise seems, he's so good pretty, looking right, exactly <laughs> right right it <laughs> seems pretty sustainable right and and of course they're not just that I mean it, 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 even setting that aside they've they've gotten a lot else right but no question that if you look at, at airline Airtran was one in the U S that uh it, its history was very much about uh, obviously a much smaller airline than Ryanair, but it, it had gotten some very well-timed deals on aircraft and, and and managed to become a strong enough airline that it was subsequently acquired by Southwest. And so absolutely that, 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 that can make all, if not all the difference, a, a, a huge part of the difference between uh, strong airlines and, and weak ones. If we look right now at the differential in the U S among the U.S. Big Three between Delta, United, and American, and there are various analyses out there of how much cash they have, the ratios, you know, relative to uh, to to where you'd want to be. Obviously, everybody's in, in terrible shape, but American is in 
considerably worse shape than the than the other two. And a lot of it seems to have to do with that 2011 aircraft order for all those planes, previous management team. Uh, and, and reasonable people could disagree about whether they should have spent all those money on all of those hundreds of narrow body Boeings and, aircraft, and Airbus aircraft. But the reality is right now that the cost of that is seems to be anyway weighing them down. Uh, and, and so a huge piece of the puzzle in terms of airline profitability, just what you pay for airplanes. And you're right. Uh, you could very easily imagine us looking back on this five or 10 years from now as having been a golden opportunity for whoever could purchase aircraft. Uh, time for our first listener question. And it's a really good one. Zach from Des Moines writes, greetings, Ben and Seth. Is this the part of the message where I say how much I hate the show? It is, Zach. Very good. Thank you. I am currently a student of public policy and interested in the world of transportation policy. Recently, Delta announced that they will not be resuming service at Manchester Boston Regional Airport in New Hampshire. And for this is me speaking now again, for, for clarification, that, that is Manchester, New Hampshire Airport. They rebranded themselves Manchester Boston uh, some, some years back, but it's the airport that uh, if you think of the old days when Southwest sort of served the two alternative airports to Boston, right? Providence and Manchester, but not Boston. <laughs> this, this is uh, this is Manchester. Uh, anyway, do you think airlines will consolidate operations at larger airports again and pull out of smaller airports? What do you see as the role of small airports such as Manchester, Boston Regional or Waterloo Regional Airport in the future? Waterloo is, is an airport in, in Iowa. Um, so great question. And what I think Zach knows, but it's worth mentioning for anybody who doesn't, is that Regional airports, whatever you want to call them, smaller, mid-sized airports, use whatever term you want, had been in the middle of sort of a a renaissance that kind of took a lot of people by surprise. Uh, going back to sort of 2000, there had been this, this long process of those airports losing service, right? The air service in the U.S. was growing overall, low single-digit percentages, but growing overall. But if you if you dug down into the numbers those low single digit growth, that was sort of the average of strong growth at a lot of big airports and contraction at smaller airports. And then that went into reverse. And we've talked about some of it in the past. Uh, United in particular said, hey, we're, we are uh, under serving smaller airports. We need to pipe that traffic into our hubs to feed our global network. And, and there's some other reasons why it happened. But but anyway, some of those airports, and it kind of caught people off guard, I think, who thought that that was just sort of this, this never-ending trend of them losing service. A lot of them started doing rather well. And now here we are back to this. I do think, Ben, you kind of have to put them in different categories and tell me if, you're, if you agree with this. Um, airports that are largely an alternative to a bigger airport. And of course, Manchester has its own catchment area where it's the most convenient airport for certain people. Every airport has that. But uh, historically, this was an airport that was sort of very vulnerable to uh, dynamics at Boston, right? And when Southwest went into Boston, that was a threat to Manchester as an airport because now Southwest didn't need Manchester as much as it once did, et cetera, right? It's just not that far from Boston. So those airports are different from ones that are hours away from anywhere else. Uh, what I ask you if you agree with that, and then just back to Zach's broader question, uh, whether 
this is just disproportionately bad for smaller airports, right? Airlines are slashing capacity. We don't know when it'll be back to 2019 levels, but it's fair to think, you know, a year from now, let's say uh, capacity is down compared to where it was before COVID. Is that going to disproportionately, do you think, impact uh, smaller airports? And, And I can think of a few reasons why it might or might not. Lots to unpack there, Seth. There's a lot in this question, and it's a great question by Zach. Thank you. And uh, glad you hate the show, too. (laughs) Um, the, The idea of serving smaller airports has strengths and weaknesses to it. Like you said, there's alternatives. I mean, at one point, Fort Lauderdale was an alternative to Miami. Now it's a huge airport in and of itself, right? Yeah. And, um, um, and so in that sense, I could see some smaller airports being harder to come back in this post-COVID world. A, because there's going to be more space at the bigger airport, at the main airport, and like Southwest going into O'Hare again, using that again, you know, there's there's the ability to fly, get in the big airport. Sometimes alternatives are, are, are chosen because you can't get more space in the big airport, but you certainly can now. But also just um, with limited demand everywhere right now, consolidating into big places makes some sense. And I think that can hurt those airports. Now, on the other hand, if you go back, if you can remember what life was like before COVID and when (laughs) Scott Kirby took over as president of United, one of the comments he sort of made was, well, these smaller airports are the only places we still get high fares because the low fare airlines aren't there anymore. Yeah. And so they actually started building up more connectivity into their hubs, largely by flying into smaller places. And they realized that like when they flew from Denver to L.A., they're competing with Southwest and Frontier and just all really low fares, basically. But when they ser- when they had service to Kalispell, Montana and carry someone from Kalispell to LA, they can actually charge that person a much higher fare and effectively replace a cheap Denver LA person with the person coming in from Kalispell. So United was building up its hubs on that basis, and that would suggest that airlines are going to look for more smaller cities to serve because they're a place they might still get reasonable prices or yields as they call them, right? And also if you serve those cities with your regional partner, so you're flying them with regional jets, some of which are, you know, that that plane is going to, the, the certainly the 50 seat regional jet is on the way out, but the 70 and 90 seat regional jets that are flown by the regionals, they're really efficient airplanes. And they may, they may be a way for the airline to sort of build back their presence with a lower cost way by using their regional carriers to go to some of these airports. Then you add into the fact, and I know I'm saying a lot here, but then you add to the fact that you have David Nealman, the guy who started Morris Air and then JetBlue and was part of WestJet and then Azul down in Brazil, right? And he was going to, he's starting this airline that he's now calling Breeze. And his business plan says he's only going to go to alternative airports. Yeah. He's not going to go to any of the main airports. Now, maybe he's rethinking that in a post COVID world. But 
you know, he was thinking of building a whole business on these kind of airports. So I guess when I put all that together, Seth, I think if I had a bet over the next year or two, it's just going to take longer to build back service to airports like Manchester or Waterloo or places like that. But longer term, I think those airports are going to be just fine and there's going to be plenty of opportunity and and plenty of people willing to make service there, whether it's fair, whether it's lower cost of service, whether it's new market penetration. That That's kind of the way I see it. Not so great the next year or two, but nothing's really that great for the next year or two. I think another way to slice it is not just the size of the airport, but also just kind of the nature of the traffic base there. And, and I'll give you an example. Here in Harrisburg, as you mentioned, where I am, uh, I was out at the airport just Friday doing a piece on Thanksgiving travel tips and that sort of thing. And I was interviewing Scott Miller, who uh, is the air service development guy, actually also the spokesman for for the airport. And we were talking about their October traffic figures, which they had just finalized. And he pointed out that October is the busiest month of the year traditionally for Harrisburg International. And I thought, wow, you know, that's not true of a lot of airports, right? But the reason I didn't even get to follow up with him, but I'm sure the reason is that because Harrisburg is not a giant tourist destination, right? Obviously, there's there's originating leisure traffic here, but not a big tourist destination. But on the other hand, has a strong sort of corporate flying community, a lot of warehouses here and companies headquartered here and that, that sort of thing. Well, uh, that's the traffic that peaks in October, right? October, you know, Ben, from, from having worked at airlines and run airlines is, is actually a great month for corporate traffic, even though the volumes of travel aren't there. And the reason is because there aren't holidays in it, aren't big holidays anyway in, in, in October. And so that's when companies historically are flying around and doing business. Well, and, they're and not... at that point, kids were back in school, right? Exactly. Kids are back in school. Exactly. Right. Uh, so, but, but here we are, it's all different now. Right. So what has gotten hit hard? Well, corporate traffic, among other things, right? A lot of leisure traffic just because destinations aren't what they once were. Family visit traffic, it's kind of what's holding up best, right? Thanksgiving will probably be decent uh, for probably be the busiest period of, of the of the COVID era uh, so far. Thanksgiving, of course, always a strong travel period. But now that's exactly what people are still able to do if they feel safe doing it. So I think that we have to keep in mind that too. Certainly the the divide between large and medium and small airports, but also just kind of what kind of traffic do they typically have? Not to mention large airports, of course, of course tend to have more international flights and that right now is still a shadow of what it once was. So in that regard, uh, small and medium sized airports maybe aren't as exposed, but uh, no fa- fascinating stuff. No question. And, and thank you, Zach, for the question. Hey, and if I can say to Zach, yeah, I think I think it's great. I too was a public policy major, and in fact, if you go back to that time, I graduated from uh, with my master's degree in the middle 1980s, which was you know five seven years after the industry was deregulated. And my thesis at that time was, what's going to happen to service at small airports? When the subsidies go away, because as probably a lot of our listeners know, when the industry was deregulated, there was at the time a 10-year subsidy put in by the federal government to keep serving small communities. One of the big fears of deregulation is, 
you know, all these small cities would lose service. So they subsidize all these cities. And so at that time, I sort of tried to look at what's going to happen to these small cities. And lo and behold, what's happened over the next 40 years is that many of them just justify the service on their own because they provide good economics to the airlines. Yeah, no question. Flight attendants behaving badly is next. Yeah, you heard that right. But first, we want to thank Clear. Travel with confidence with Clear. Touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports nationwide, moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at www.clearme.com airlines. That's www.clearme.com airlines. That was not a verbal typo by Ben. Uh, I guess slip of the tongue, you'd say, right? Instead of passengers behaving badly, we do have flight attendants behaving badly, or at least one flight attendant, singular. Now, the airline's no surprise. It's the one that seems to produce the most passengers behaving badly, Spirit Airlines, of course. Uh, you can find the viral video online of a rather stern pre-flight announcement. Uh, now, we've all heard of announcements where flight attendants tell us they're here for our safety first. And let's be honest, we've all been on one or two flights where a flight attendant seems to think they're there only for our safety and nothing else. Well, this spirit flight attendant basically verbalized that, but he also said a lot else that not only wasn't very nice, it's just not true. Like one example, he said, if the flight attendants had to ask more than once for a passenger to cover their nose and mouth, then without further warning, that passenger would be fined or arrested at their destination and quote, you will also be placed on the no-fly list, meaning that you'll not be able to fly any airline for the rest of your life. That, of course, is not true. Uh, now, the airline has said, quote, the message in this video is not Spirit's approved message for welcoming guests on board our planes and is not authorized. We appreciate the guests who brought it to our attention. We're addressing the issue to make sure that this does not occur again in the future. Now, Ben, I have to say, you watch the video there's also a certain uh, look it's ridiculous but on the other hand you see somebody who's under a lot of stress right and sort of vents also about just how difficult the job has become right and needless to say i hope everybody <laughs> i know you and i and hope everybody listening listening to the show believes that people should wear their masks right and, and and cover their nose and mouth and obviously only take it off for the limited amount of time that they have to to do whatever it is you know drink or eat and then put it back on and all the rest of it right nobody's disagreeing about any of that but still yeah this is somebody who uh again it, it starts with you, you can't threaten things that are just not true starting with the fact that it's not the law, right? It is the policy of these airlines, right? So that's just not true when he's threatening fines and, and arrest and all the rest of it. Uh, it's a policy. It's a good one. Glad they have it, but that that's just factually inaccurate. And even to the extent that airlines are enforcing their own no-fly list, there's this widespread belief that when this is all over, you know, when there's a vaccine and all the rest of it, that they're not even going to prevent the people on those lists from flying forever, right? So Delta famously, I think, has five or 600 people on the list. Uh, but I think most people believe that someday those people are going to be allowed to to fly Delta again. So just on many levels, this was uh, this was a doozy. It, it, it was a doozy. And, you know, it's a doozy within an interesting category, though, because in general, I like it when flight attendants improvise, not 
to this extent, right? But around, you know, things that they can to try to make what is a stressful situation, usually for travelers, a little lighthearted by joking a little bit. Yeah. Things like that, you know, silly things like, uh, you know, this is XYZ flight to Albuquerque. So if you're not going to Albuquerque, you are now, you know, <laughs> you know dumb things like that. right? Yeah. Southwest, right. obviously famous for, for that kind of stuff. No, I, lo- I love it. Absolutely right. Yeah. And so on some end, I could almost think that this flight attendant thought that he was, you know, just going to take it a little bit further. But in fact, when you watch the video, you realize he is really stressed and they're, it just was a real, real tough situation. It's unfortunate that he sort of, it, I mean, it's clear he just got tired of telling people you have to put on your mask and yeah. things like that. And it's, it's unfortunate that people behave in that situation. It's a lot of people behaving badly that sort of made him behave badly in a way. On the other hand, he's responsible for what he says. And he said some pretty dumb things. I'm sure the company's going to take care of that well. Yeah, I would think so. And you just feel bad for other flight attendants who all feel the same things that he's feeling, right? It's crazy what they have to deal with now. And I mean, people died around the world, like, like, you know, before masks and all the rest of it, you know, flight attendants have been through as much related to COVID as, as anybody. In, in yeah. I mean, they're, they're as frontline as a, as a lot of frontline people. Yeah, exactly. So you feel for them, but on the other hand, I'm sure there are, there were some that thought, I'm sure there were a lot that thought on one hand, I can relate to the stress, but on the other hand, he's making everybody else look bad who felt all the same things and, and didn't verbalize them. Well, well, and the last thing any flight attendant wants to do right now, let alone anyone who works in the airline industry, is make people either scared or turn them off to travel. Right. When in fact, what everybody wants is more people to travel. No, exactly. Is one airline asking too much of people who have heavy wheelchairs? And is another airline asking too much of people dealing with what you might call heavy family issues? More Airlines Confidential is next. Seabury Capital is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, maritime and financial services, and technologies. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology and solutions, as well as unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. That's Seabury, S-E-A-B-U-R-Y, capital.com. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Back now to the mailbag. Nick from Boston writes, please weigh in. Uh, and I don't know if that was a uh, purposeful double entendre, uh, but uh, very appropriate here. American Eagles decision, he says, to impose a Weight limit, 300 pounds for power wheelchairs, accepted aboard regional aircraft. When American Eagle quietly imposed this rule in June and claimed they did so because they're damaging too many chairs rather than imposing exclusionary, and this is Nick saying this perhaps unlawful ban, why 
not ensure airport personnel have the proper equipment and training to handle this. Other domestic regional operators for Alaska, Delta, and United have not imposed a similar restriction. Uh, this could be avoided if uh, passenger aircraft were truly wheelchair accessible. So in other words, saying, well, then you wouldn't have to put them in. Do you see any possibility of this becoming a reality one day? Uh, obviously, this would be very challenging on regional aircraft, but could be achieved with popular, uh, with a proper regulatory framework and guidance for mainline, narrow, and wide-body aircraft. Now, first of all, the uh, thank you, Nick. Uh, the Dallas Morning News had an update on this just about a week ago. They, they do a great job, Kyle Arnold down there. So apparently, according to this, and it wasn't something I was very familiar with, but this all started with a with regulations in Canada. Canada wanted to know what the limit was for for cargo, and so American had to come up with something, and it all sort of started from there, right? Aircraft that fly into Canada, so some of these aircraft, although maybe that's not most of what they're doing, they do fly to Canada. So American had to come up with this, and then that sort of became. Uh, the rest of it, but but the company has said that they're revisiting this. Uh, that they are, according to the morning news, reviewing a policy change uh, that may have banned travelers from bringing motorized wheelchairs that they could have in the past. So, uh, so, so you know, American knows, uh, and they're, I guess, doing what they can to take care of it. But Ben. And we should say, obviously, the legal issues you mentioned, legalities, that's not something we're, we're just not not lawyers. And, not, and obviously, that, that's that's a separate question. But but what do you think? Ben? I mean, this is gosh, it, it's it's one of the most challenging things about airplanes is that space is at such a premium. And there's so many other sort of competing regulatory issues from a safety perspective that it, 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 no question, it's tough making these things accessible to people with with disabilities and, and all these decades after a lot of other areas of our lives became more accessible planes are better than they once were in some regards but they're you know they're nothing like what people with disabilities have fortunately become accustomed to getting in other realms of life huge compromises that everybody makes when they get on an airplane but certainly people with disabilities that's exactly right, Seth. This is a tough thing. Let me start with sort of a later sort of story, which talks about, you know, why we. it's good that we can have this conversation. Probably 15 years ago or so, when I first met the president of Tiger Airways, which is an airline based in Singapore. So this would have been Tony Davis? Yes, it would have been Tony Davis, but I didn't want to put his name to this. So <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But it, <laughs> oh, well. But we were having a discussion, and this was when Spirit was just starting its transition to sort of the idea of being an ultra-low-cost airline. And, and so talking to Tiger, who was already in that space, was helpful. And, and he was talking about how he didn't use jet bridges at any of his airports. And I said, well, how do you deal with customers with wheelchairs? And he very matter-of-factly, with no mean streak at all, says, well, if you can't walk up my stairs, you can't fly on my airplane. And I was just like amazed at yeah. that. And I'm really glad that we don't live in a country that thinks like that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so it's so that's a it's a funny story in a sense to yeah. say it's great that we can have this kind of discussion and that Nick can very seriously say, how are we going to deal with this kind of issue? Because we should. Now that said, airlines are put in a really tough position 
because airlines are subject to federal aviation regulations, which among the many of them says you have to be able to evacuate an airplane in 90 seconds in the case of an emergency. And in fact, they regularly test airlines by putting planes in ham- hangars with stopwatches and you know making sure that they can meet that. And then the American Disabilities Act says anyone who needs a wheelchair, essentially, or special accommodation needs to be accommodated. Now, it's just a fact that if you have 180 seats on an A320 and everybody needs a wheelchair, there's no way you can evacuate that plane in 90 seconds. In fact, probably if more than 10 of them have wheelchairs, it's going to be hard to evacuate more than 90 seconds. So airlines have to figure out, do I violate the FAA regulation of my evacuation criteria or do I violate the ADA? And as you can guess, they regularly violate the FAA rule in that case. And I'm not going to say they violate FAA rules, but the point is it could, it's not a media story, right? To say I couldn't evacuate in 90 seconds when most of the times you're never asked to evacuate, but it is a media story. If you say you can't, you know, if you can't walk up my stairs, you can't fly. Right. That is a media story. And so I think that Americans sort of walking back this thing when they realized maybe how tone deaf this policy was is a big deal. That said, small airplanes deal with lots of weight issue. And the fact that they talked about it in terms of the weight of the piece of equipment rather than the type of equipment it was, maybe maybe that would have been a better way to do it, to say sort of any uh, you know assistive sort of equipment that weighs more than a certain amount, we can't handle, right? Because it can put risk on our people or it can be too heavy for the airplane or it may, may, they may have to take fewer people because the plane gets too heavy, right? There's all kinds of things with that. So people who use wheelchairs should be able to fly. Airlines should make accommodations to do that. I don't think the right long-term answer is to assure that every seat on every airplane could be accommodated by someone who needs a wheelchair. I think that would just make it really impractical for the economics of this industry. But I think this decision by American Eagle was a little bit tone deaf. And as the Dallas Morning News reported, as you said, it looks like they're walking that back a bit. And that's probably a good thing. What do you think, Seth? Yeah. And and another thing is that Americans, I think, and of course, I'm saying this as somebody without disabilities, and I, I I, I can't speak for anybody who has them, but Americans, Canadians, maybe people from a few other countries are are more fortunate in some regards than others because if you just broadly speaking, if you are in a country that number one, like policy wise, has prioritized this, and number two is a relatively young country, like architecturally, you're just kind of better off when you go around in general. So what I mean is uh, you told us a story about about what Tony Davis said and there are countries who you know who feel that way. <laughs> um and then it, you then you go to a place like Europe where generally there's there's a lot of sympathy and and attempt to to provide for people but the buildings are just so many hundreds of years old. Yeah, I'm not talking about airports, I'm just talking about life in general that you know if, if you if you grandfather everything, 
which is how it tends to be. I mean, even in the U.S. with, with the ADA, it's just that in the U.S., since the passage of the ADA back in, what, 1994, I think it was, something like that, so much of what exists now ha- was built since then or was renovated since then where people had to accommodate. Whereas in Europe, uh, you, know, you go to to places that have the same kind of sympathy but it's just, just you know, you're Paris. I mean, just there's so many buildings that are just never going to be accessible. And so I think it, it, in some ways, maybe stands out more in the U.S. when you have a situation that is relatively inaccessible because people are used to, thank goodness, uh, decent access at this point. Same thing in Canada uh, versus places like Europe where pe- people are just used to, in, in a lot of areas of their life, just 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 having those kinds of uh, those kinds of challenges. Absolutely. Well, do you have a question for us? You can call us at 305-379-7429 and record a question. We'll play it on the air. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. Finer Wine is next, but first we want to thank Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. They're a Fortune 1000 company that makes travel management easier and less expensive with their AI-powered booking applications, intelligent learning algorithms, customizable rules engines, analytics, and global negotiated rate programs. For travel, logistics, hotels, transport, and technology solutions, visit hotelconnections.com. That's hotelconnections.com. Well, are you looking for the Boeing 747 launch brochure? Yeah, I know you are. The archive.net is the webzium of commercial aviation. It's an AvGeek virtual webzium and archive, hence the name archive. That's A-I-R-C-H-I-V-E. Uh, the largest collection of AvGeek memorabilia on the web. It's not another plane spotting website, timetables, route maps, airline cabins, menus, safety cards, brochures, airline terminals, airplane graveyards, behind the scenes of airline headquarters, training facilities, museum photos, final assembly lines, MROs and airlines from past to present. Best part is it's all free at thearchive.net. Again, thearchive.net, or you can follow the archive on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's awesome, isn't it, Seth? (laughs) And it was gone for a little while, and now it's back. I'm so excited. Me too. (laughs) Fantastic. Chris Sloan, our friend, uh, runs that thing, and it's uh, it's a labor of love. Again, it's free. Love it. Uh, Beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's Time for fine or wine. We listen to an actual customer complaint, and then we talk about whether the complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Ben, you have a complaint. As always, yes, Seth. Della of Monroe, Wisconsin is complaining about United. Della writes, I had booked a ticket for my fiancé to Mexico to see his very ill father for November, but with his father's bad condition, he had to fly out a lot earlier to see his father. I called United Airlines to cancel the original trip and was told the only way to get a cash refund of money we paid was to show proof of death or email medical records of the father's failing health. All right. Well, so they were willing to do it. They just wanted to see the uh, the proof. What do you think, Ben? Fine or why? You know, I'm obviously it's hard to say that like they're going to see the real father. They're whining. But it seems to me that United saying, well, you know, anybody could have that story. So just show us something that you really do need to fly earlier. And sort of the email medical records, my guess is 
They could have got a doctor to say, you know, hey, we'd like the daughter to come or something. I don't know. It doesn't seem to me that you, what United was asking was really inappropriate. Maybe they said it in a way that was very uh, perfunctory or or clinical rather than with any sort of empathy. And that might have made it worse. I'm just I'm reading into it there. Yeah. But I mean, if you know, if they had sort of said, well, look, can you can you give us anything to show us that this is really the situation? You know, because otherwise, you know, we would normally ask for a death certificate which is easy to get if somebody dies, right, to, to give to the airline. But obviously this guy didn't die, you know, so what can you show us? I almost think that it probably was more in the tonality of how United sort of maybe was a bit dismissive or negative on this. And I'm reading all of that into these couple of sentences here. And I realize that may be wrong because it seems to me that what they asked wasn't terrible. And yet Della felt that she needed to write a complaint about it, which seems a little mismatched to me. Emma, you think I'm over, over uh, thinking this? Seth? No, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I was, uh, I thankfully I haven't had a ton of experience with this over, over the course of my life, just personal experience. But I remember a couple of years ago, my, my grandfather died at 98 years old, that a long, great life. Um, and, and so in the time leading up to that, there were a lot of uh, hospital stays and so forth. And then, and then finally he died when we were actually over in London and we were, this actually was, we were, it was Thanksgiving uh, of, of, of two years ago. So we were supposed to be flying from London back to, Washington, I got these great low miles, Virgin Atlantic, uh, premium economy seats using Delta miles and, and uh, oh, the nonstop flight from, you know, he throw back to Dulles at the perfect time and the whole thing. Well, you know, then that happened. So now we had to go to Fort Lauderdale and um, I called Delta and they were nice about saying, well, you know, you'll, you'll need to basically use the miles that it would require then if you want, if you still want to do it as an award ticket to fly, it ends up being a lot more miles to fly in economy now uh, with a connection at <laughs> JFK and the whole thing. And, you know, there, there went, uh, uh, you know, obviously uh, uh, for, for, for the right reason, there went that, uh, that comfortable nonstop uh, trip back, uh, but they waived the, the redeposit fees and all of that. And in, in, in the, run up to that with some of the other issues, there were similar situations with other airlines. At one point, my mom was going to be coming north. We were going to be going to like a wedding in New York and then going back to Washington together. This whole thing. There were a lot of a lot of tickets like that. And all the airlines were, were great. But they did to varying degrees ask for evidence. And I I always thought that was fine because I, to me that was just that was just splitting the difference, right? I mean they're saying, well well we're going to make an exception and we're not going to charge uh, the, 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 the fee, or we're going to refund the ticket that we don't normally refund or whatever, uh, or, or at least, you know, let, let you use the value later without charging a uh, change fee, all the rest of it. And so I, I just thought that was perfectly reasonable because otherwise just anybody could say that and, 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 and it, it wouldn't work. They'd have to stop doing it and that wouldn't be fair to people who need it. So, uh, but, but maybe it was just that the people expressed a lot of sympathy in each case that I remember dealing with. And it could just be, as you said, that this, uh, yeah, that, that's why I thought it. Cause it didn't seem like an, un, an inappropriate ask yeah. by you. No, I, I thought if anything, I, I thought that was where we know what be, what it sounds like too. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because that was my reaction was like, Oh, that's really reasonable. You know, and they, I think one of them, they just asked me, uh, 
and I can't remember which which of the airlines right now uh, it was, but they they document. They say, okay, what hospital is he at? What's his? They just sort of asked me enough information that you know I, I was able to quickly produce it. That I guess they just found it credible. That sort of thing, right? Uh, so so I guess they do it in different ways, but uh, but to me that's that's reasonable. If you're going to make a major exception to your policy, you just ask for some kind of documentation. Even though obviously full sympathy for uh, for Della. And, and her fiance in terms of what they were dealing with. Well, on final approach now, it does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Please fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Ben Baldanza. Talk to you soon. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.